Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is a May 6 update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, we are providing twice-weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcasts featuring the latest news, treatment updates, and clinical considerations, as well as answering your questions about COVID-19. These will be available on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME and CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a range of topics. Today's learning objectives are, describe testing priorities for COVID-19 illness, review remdesivir data and what is known from randomized controlled trials, and discuss tissue injury mechanisms in COVID-19. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Faith, and uh, glad you're listening today. I want to certainly acknowledge the generous support of DKB Med, the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, and also the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Also, for additional resources and educational activities, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com. We're now well into our second month of uh, the novel coronavirus uh, across the globe, at also, of course, in the United States. And one of the issues, of course, as we're moving along is certain states are proceeding with different levels of uh, relaxation of social distancing and others are maintaining them. I think this will be quite challenging times and really in two to three weeks we'll sort of see what kind of impact these changes may be having. But for the time being, perhaps on the good news side, the CDC updated their testing recommendations. I think this reflects that there is an increasing testing capacity generally, but there is still an emphasis on uh, certain higher risk populations to get tested and perhaps tested more promptly. And I think a, a lot of you may be already familiar with these, but we uh, might just want to just touch on them. Obviously, anyone that's hospitalized, that's a no-brainer. Healthcare workers, anyone that lives in congregate living situations, uh, you know, people that are homeless, for example, in shelters or nursing facilities, first responders, and so on. The others, uh, besides people already having suspicion of COVID-19, include asymptomatic people. And this is the first time this has been emphasized in a sort of simplistic manner here. And that includes people who may have certain racial or ethnic minority groups who are disproportionately affected. And this has been identified because of increased rates of hospitalization compared to presence in the population, such as African-Americans, Hispanics, and Latinos, and then certain Indian tribe nations, such as the Navajo. Also, of course, the asymptomatic people could be part of a surveillance or public health interventions, 
um, as well as just routine screening, for example, in prisons, ho homeless shelters, or, or any kind of um, institutional setting. So I think as testing capacity expands, we'll be seeing this more and more. However, if you've been listening to this program in the past, you know I have reservations about antibody testing. And you can see the last bullet on this slide is the CDC has no current recommendations for antibody testing. And this really reflects the uh, sort of influx situation of antibody tests where we don't yet know really how well they perform. Is it sufficiently accurate enough to be certain we're not seeing a lot of false positives and whether these tests reflect that people have protective levels of immunity. I did want to spend a little bit of time on some therapeutics because this has become big news over the past week. The drug remdesivir, which was originally proposed as a treatment for Ebola, does have effect against coronaviruses. And it's an antiviral, you can see here in this schema, that uh, when a virus enters a host cell and really has to replicate RNA to make proteins that then assemble new virions, that this drug, remdesivir, which is only available IV, is metabolized to a prodrug, but this active molecule, the GS441524, actually interrupts the polymerase protein of the virus that's generated by the host cell and therefore staunches further viral replication. Uh, we know this works well in the test tube, but the question is how well has this done in clinical trials? And of course, the gold standard is always a randomized controlled trial. And the first one of any significant degree out of the box was uh, this trial from China, which was halted prematurely. Uh, they had difficulty with study enrollment. They only had 237 patients. This was, though, a sicker population. People could have symptoms up to 12 days, but they needed to have lung involvement. And uh, the overall findings compared to placebo were no improvement. There is no improvement in mortality or clinical effect. And perhaps most worrisome was that there is no effect on the viral load, meaning there is no clear impact when this drug was administered. Now, there were some trends in the group that received the drug before 10 days. And I think this is perhaps hopeful because we know from studies in influenza that the earlier you use antiviral therapy in that respiratory infection, the more likely you'll see a clinical impact. So perhaps the drug was just given too late. However, the one that made the splash, we really have minimal data. And that was uh, discussed by Anthony Fauci and in a press release in late April on a randomized controlled trial, also in patients with lung involvement, and they got a higher dose on the first day of uh, intravenous load, followed by daily dosing for up to 10 days. Now, this was over 1,000 patients, and it was 68 sites, so certainly um, lots of different centers participated, so you don't have as much troubles trying to mimic real-life experience. And interestingly, I was actually surprised that this trial showed an impact but the impact was that there was a decreased length of stay by 31%, meaning that people that got placebo left the hospital at 15 days, and those that got the steady drug, uh, it was 11 days. However, in terms of mortality, there was a trend there, but it didn't turn out to be statistically significant. Now, as with any quality RCT, there is a data safety monitoring board, and that board did not suggest halting the study 
early because of clear and convincing benefit of treatment. But the decision was made on an interim data analysis to announce these results. And indeed, the trial is going to adapt or pivot and change to incorporate a new drug therapy suggesting that remdesivir now is something of a standard of care as an antiviral against this coronavirus. I do want to point out, though, some things that have perhaps made people pause is that the original study design was changed just a few weeks before and had this eight-point severity scale, and instead they changed to a revised primary endpoint of time to recovery, uh, and these sorts of things are usually frowned upon. Now, the dosing here, um, this drug then got FDA authorization under the emergency use authorization to treat hospitalized patients. You can see here that anyone that's quite ill in the ICU or on ECMO can get treatment for up to 10 days, whereas five days is suggested if patients are hospitalized and have lower oxygen levels in the blood or require supplemental oxygen. Now, this drug currently is being distributed. Uh, there are one and a half million doses provided by Gilead by the federal government, but hospitals, for example, our hospital as of today hadn't yet said how or whether they will receive drug outside of clinical trials. So, you know, we'll still see how much drug is available. There's approximately enough doses for some 100,000 plus a number of people. Uh, to be treated for a treatment course. I'd like to conclude by a few things that we're beginning to really uh, just be amazed at, I think, that this coronavirus is, I think there's so many questions. You know, most people have no symptoms or mild illness if they're infected, and yet, you know, five or 10% or even more, depending on the age and comorbidities of the population, have dramatic disease that is life-threatening. Most people know about the tissue lung injury that occurs in the lung that might precipitate something like ARDS, but we see renal failure with a significant frequency in people who are in the ICU. We end up seeing MIs, pulmonary embolus, DVTs. About half of people who are ill have elevated liver function tests. There are strokes. Some people present with diarrhea. There's smell loss conjunctivitis, uh, to me, and again, uh, thinking back to when we were just learning about HIV and having opportunistic infections, in a way, this HIV was a simpler virus to understand here because there was sort of a lockstep physiology there with that virus and the CD4 cells. Here, uh, there's a lot that we still yet have to learn. But for ARDS, uh, our critical care colleagues have tried for a while to figure out interventions. Now, classic ARDS from bacteria tends to be a problem of neutrophil activation and mucus and debris with lung injury there in response to certain danger signals that might be provided by bacterial endotoxin or others. However, although there have been no promising drugs that have really worked well for this kind of ARDS, this is not the ARDS of coronavirus. So the standard ARDS 
is not thought what we see. What we tend to see in this little more complicated slide is a lung injury that probably is very similar to what we understand influenza does when it causes ARDS, although it does it at a lower frequency than this coronavirus. And this is a process where activation within endothelial cells and engaging with the ACE2 receptor somehow triggers intense inflammation. It also uh, seems to be a disorder of uh, regulatory T cells, uh, that's T4 and T8 cells, that all combined, as you can see on the bottom, to produce lung injury with accumulation of fluid, uh, additional macrophages, um, also fibrin and scarring that really causes problems with uh, diffusion of oxygen and lung compliance. However, if people survive, uh, they tend to have less of this kind of lung injury situation. And really why those triggers occur in some, we think may have to do with certain genetic signals, perhaps from host responses, as well as uh, occasionally uh, may have specific polymorphisms that are with a given virus, uh, as we can see sometimes in severe influenza. So, you know, stay tuned and we may know more. One of the things that I think were initially discounted was that a lot of patients in the ICU seem to have clots, and this can happen even in any ICU critically ill patient. But this virus that does bind to the ACE2 receptor on endothelial cells in this cartoon seems to cause either vasoconstriction, so the vessels constrict in response to inflammation, or precipitates clots. And this has driven what seems to be a fairly high incidence of strokes, MIs, pulmonary embolus, and DVTs. So this has precipitated some interesting debate uh, as to whether you anticoagulate all patients at a higher intensity or even full level anticoagulation in certain patients. And a lot of this is being driven now by some accumulating experience, for example, in Italy, where there were certainly many patients that ended up in the ICU. Prophylaxis was done in all their patients that ended up in the ICU, yet there is still a substantial amount of problems with thrombosis seen with nearly 30% uh, of people in the ICU despite this prophylaxis having clots. And these patients were diagnosed in the first 24 hours, which suggests that perhaps the clots were already in formation. And this didn't seem to be because these patients were in a DIC profile. France also uh, had a fairly high incidence, a much lower number of patients, only 26. But you can see for those that were in the ICU and anticoagulated, 100% of people there, they were able to find clots. In the Netherlands, also 31% findings of clots. In China, 20% of uh, those patients had a cardiac injury, although there's debate if all of that is due to thrombosis. So I think this is still being sorted out. We haven't seen a lot of excessive bleeding. So I think there is certainly a trend towards anticoagulating more aggressively certain high-risk individuals. And that, of course, includes um, people that end up in the ICU. I wanted to thank you very much for listening. Uh, every week we are learning more and more about this fascinating but devastating virus. Unfortunately, we do not have time for questions and answers this week. They'll return next week. Uh, thanks so much for listening.
Thank you again, Dr. Allwater. A programming note, we do not have time for Q&A today as we will be recording an interview with Karin Huster, who has recently worked as a field coordinator in response to the coronavirus pandemic in Hong Kong. She now volunteers as one of the coordinators on the homeless response for COVID-19 with Seattle King County Public Health. Dr. Allwater and Karin will discuss infection prevention control, health promotion, and mental health activities packages targeting the most vulnerable populations. Please be on the lookout for this interview this Friday. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. Don't forget to access our resource center on covid19.dkbmed.com. There you'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Slides from previous and current webinars are also available there. To all of our listeners, please be on the lookout for our next activity this Friday. We will send out an email when it's available later this week. Any questions can be submitted by sending them to qa at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Dr. Allwater, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Faith.